Hello, everyone. We'll get started. Those of you who are standing, uh, feel free to just sit on the floor um, or move on up uh, so that you can be closer to the panel. I'm Annette Cohn-Skelton. I'm the director here and so delighted to have all of you in attendance. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have such distinguished guests at MOCA GA this evening. Welcome to all of you. I'm honored, all of you on the panel as well. I'm also very honored uh, that Sheila chose to do this body of work for her Working Artist Project project. And uh, she was the winner in 2014-15, and she worked on this work for a full year, um, and then presented it here in this exhibition. Our Working Artist Project is a major program at MOCA GA. Each year, we honor three artists with a stipend, a studio apprentice, where is Terrell? Where is he? There he is, with Sheila's apprentice. And Keisha was also right there beside Sheila through a lot of this program. Um, I'm not going to talk very much. I'm going to forego the usual, the artist did this and this and these exhibitions, because we want to hear from the panel, and then we want to hear questions and answers from the audience and from the elders. Good evening, everybody. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming out. And I'm not going to talk a lot because it's about the voices of the young people. And we're going to have a dialogue in here. Um, I started this project actually back in 19, not 1960, um, back in 2013 where I was looking at young people. I had a body of work called Young Americans. And they are the biggest generation in history, Generation Y. And I gave them a flag and I wanted to know what they thought about the country and they did whatever they want with it. But as that body of work developed, I started thinking about the young people that make change in our history. And I started looking at the young people in the civil rights movement because they changed the face of the nation. So I met Mr. Charles Black, raise your hand. And from there, I met Mr. Lonnie King. And they were the two that were very instrumental with me of getting um, the young people back then, which you guys, I don't want to say elder <laughs> with that. And I started, a, back, I started a, a body of work called 1960 Who, because I wanted to reach back to show the unknown civil rights leaders. It doesn't just take one person to lead, but it takes all of us and all of our different working parts. So I launched the project on walls here in Atlanta, where they were 12 feet high, 10 feet high, to honor Mr. King, Mr. Black, and the other mem members. From that time on, I actually was looking at the youth now. And that's how I came up with 1960 Now. Because I feel that there's a big generational gap. There's always a generational gap. But there is a big generational gap 
when it comes to history and learning our history because I learned so much from Mr. Black and Mr. King and I would go home to my mom because she's around about their age and I told her, I said, Mom, why didn't you talk to us about the Civil Rights Movement? Um, I'm an army brat, number one. She said, because I didn't want you to hate white people. So I think that generation didn't really talk to us about the movement. And I think that's where the disconnect is with Generation Y, even with Generation X. And so I'm trying to create a dialogue among us to speak and talk. And this is what you see on the walls, on the floors, the video. This is my experience where I was, I've been on the ground with all of them. And in order for you to understand what's really going on, you have to be on the ground. You can't look at media because they filter things out. I mean, my first experience were here when Ariel Nim shut down Martha Luther King Parade the first of the year. You guys didn't hear about that on TV, did you? <laughs> it was called Reclaim Martha Luther King Day. And from there, I was doing my travels through Ferguson. I went to the aftermath. And when I went to those protests, there was tension in the air. And Baltimore was the longest place that I've been, and that's where I met Kwame Rose. I was up there for six weeks. And I saw the pain. I saw the, the hurt. I saw, saw the anger. I saw the love, and I saw the passion. And you can really get emotional behind all of this. And with this exhibit, we're in a, a museum. I didn't want it to be a regular thing. I wanted everybody to feel something when they walk in here. And that's why you see the images um, on the floor. It may be uncomfortable to you, but we live in, this whole year has been very uncomfortable for everybody, and it's about disruption. So from there, I'm gonna bring it over to Lakeisha because she's been with me on the ground. She came up with the Bring It 1960 Now campaign that I had on Instagram, and she was really instrumental in producing the video that you guys see on the wall. It's my video footage of me being on the ground, and we worked together with that. Lakeisha. Thanks, Sheila. Um, thank you, it's an honor to be here with this panel. Um, I'm Keisha, also known as Keish, and I'm your moderator for this afternoon. Um, if you are posting this evening's talk, I think it's an important dialogue, so if you'd like to share it, the hashtag this evening is 1960NowTalk, and um, you, can, you can make sure that people kind of hear what's going on. Um, am I, re am I, is there a reverb? Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, all right. Um, so we're going to start just introducing ourselves and um, telling you about our work and how we are connected with Sheila. She's already kind of told you. But um, my, um, my work is, as a cultural producer is creating intersections where academia and pop culture and, um, and millennials can come in the same space and have a conversation. We're periscoping this evening, so if you're on your phone and you want to tune into that, we know you're paying attention. Um, and so it's live, and we have some of our global community with us. Um, but the way that I know she was, she, she was known me all my life. <laughs> um, but we started working on this project since 1960, who, and thinking about taking the work out of the museums into the streets to reach the people. And um, it, it was nice, it was very successful. And then it turned into something more than that. It turned, because the hashtag didn't stop. 
And so we wanted to collect history, and we wanted to collect the history that would bridge gaps. So that's how I got connected to the work. And we'll just pass it to Baron. Hello, everyone. Um, well, well um, my name is Farron Manuel. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a graduate of uh, Clark Atlanta University, and um, while in my senior year, um, I served the student body as um, undergraduate SGA president. And during that period, I got a, I, I really wanted to get involved, um, you know, with all of these, you know, black people being killed legally on camera. Um, I couldn't just, you know, just stand idly by and do nothing. So, um, you know, I looked at my position in the world and I just kind of employed, you know, that position in order to make a constructive change. So something that we started to do with the students was, you know, different things like having legal forms to teach our students basic uh, police interaction. Um, we would bring in, um, you know, different speakers to, you know, to talk to the students and implement different programs, different programs and things. And I would also go to the protests and later I would be called upon to do different news interviews and things. And I got a chance to see uh, where Sheila's work fitted into all of these things that are going on. Um, some of the false, like false or um, skewed narratives that would be put out in mainstream news versus things that bloggers would put out and people that were actually, like Sheila said, on the ground in the protest. And you know, I kind of got to see like the different holes in the reporting, which is why I think perception changing work like this is so important. And um, and, and and you know, with the rise of the internet, you have people that have the opportunity. Um, to, you know, to give additional reporting and to give like a more broadened view of the things that are going on. So that's, um, that's pretty much how I got connected to the work. Hello, hello. Um, my name is Crystal Mons. I am an artist and a yoga instructor. Um, I became connected in a different way um, to this movement right now um, after the murder of Mike Brown. Um, and I've started to do um, a lot of the, the actions, a lot of the direct actions that were happening around Atlanta um, and disrupting things. Um, and one of my main things around that time was documenting. So we talk about reporting our own stories again. Um, I thought it was important for us to have our own voice and do live stream and get all of the details that you're not going to see on the news um, so we could have our own perspective out there so people can see it. It's not just raw, it's just raw. Um, so coming from a, a yogi kind of background, that's where I started to do more of the healing work. Um, in Atlanta, so holding healing salons and holding healing stations at protests just for folks that are involved to kind of come back, sit down, if they have their kids, come bring them over, get a drink of water, and kind of recenter um, so that we can keep moving forward and retain our strength in that way. I uh, became connected with this. Um, I've been following Sheila's work for a while. Um, and actually contacted me through my roommate. <laughs> um, but yeah, so of course, after doing this work, it all kind of just fell into place and um, I just went ahead and got on board. Yeah. 
Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. My name is Melissa Rivas-Triana. Um, I'm an undocumented student here in Atlanta. Um, so I'm a part of Freedom University, which is an underground freedom school based here in Atlanta, um, which works to um, give undocumented students uh, access to higher education. Um, where they're here in, in Georgia, we're currently banned from the top five universities in the state. Um, in Freedom University really works to um, build intergenerational and interracial connections. Um, so we actually get a lot of inspiration from student movements of the past, particularly SNCC, um, Atlanta Student Movement, um, uh, Freedom Summer 1964. And we work with a lot of the veterans that are still here in Atlanta, Charles Black, um, and Lonnie King actually came um, to one of our actions, um, and Sheila as well came to one of our actions this past January. Um, where we held an integrated classroom at uh, UGA with documented and undocumented students um, knowingly for the first time in history. Um, and Sheila actually, well, I, can, I became connected with this work. Um, I met Sheila actually, she came to one of our class. Uh, we had a documentary photography class and she actually guest, guest lectured at it. Um, and she came, as I said, to our action. Um, and. Yeah, I, she's interested in our movement, and I think it has a lot of connections. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, peace and love. My name is Joe Azair Ben Eastcock. Uh, I'm from Hashtag It's Bigger Than You. And uh, before I was a movement worker, I was a spoken word artist. I still am. And I, um, uh, I created, I create uh, events where we blend art and create empathy, where people can have fertile ground for um, internal and social change. Um, I, first, I have to thank Sheila for inviting me into this work because she, she chased me down. She chased me down <laughs> across protests. Um, and she said, I have to get you, I have to, you have to be a part of this. And she had asked me to look at it months and months before, but if, if, if Ario can put a test to anything about me is that I did not stop moving uh, for at least a year from, <laughs> from August 14th. Um, and so she, when she finally got me here, I just felt so humbled to be um, asked to be a part of this and to be connected to this great work which connects um, 1960s to now and beyond. Uh, a continuous, I like to say that our liberation movement is a continuous chain. It, it, it's never been this movement of 2014 to 15, and it's never been 1960. Black people have never stopped struggling for liberation at any point in all of history. So um, that's how I got connected. She, she chased me down and invited me here, and, and if you, you I, I might cry tonight because this, this, this space is probably the first space where I was made to stop and recollect exactly what has happened. I'm very appreciative for her for creating it through art, because as an artist, it, it hit me very viscerally. And, and as I sat and she took my photo, there was an intensity that came from the ancestors that I, did, I didn't know where it came from. Um, and it's, it's really a special work, and I thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So good evening, everyone. How are you all doing? All right, so my name is Kwame Rose. Uh, 
I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and so, so I won't say, I mean, the way I got involved in the movement, uh, so I always say that um, I was active way before I was an activist. So I always recognized the fact that I was a black male in America. My father always raised me to know that I had it 10 times as hard as anybody else, um, just because of the fact that my skin is black. Um, so, I mean, I watched on TV, like, the depth of Trayvon Martin, which actually was, like, the start of the movement, right? When Trayvon got killed by George Zimmerman, it was the first time my generation got to see, like, kind of on the forefront of that, wait a minute, we're dying, and that people are actually engaged in changing that. Um, and then Mike Brown died uh, a little, a short while later. Um, but I, it wasn't until Freddie Gray died um, so I always say the death of Freddie Gray gave me a purpose for my life. Um, and so I realized that it was closer than home. It was more than just being on the TV screen. It was being home. And I guess the moment that kind of uh, threw me into the movement, I was at work, and um, it was that Monday. Uh, and I, so I worked at a hotel. I was a bellman at a hotel, and I was in the back. So the CNN was reporting that Baltimore is going under siege by riots. And I had a white coworker walk in the back and they were reporting on TV that, you know, police officers were injured. And so she repeats, she yells out, oh my gosh, this is terrible, did anybody die? And I said, yeah, that's kind of the reason for all of this. And she said, no, I'm talking about police officers. And so I said, yeah, but the police officers are the ones who are the problem. And so I got told not to bring that into work. Um, so the, the way I, I, so that kind of threw me. So Baltimore, the protests in Baltimore, they weren't organized by organizers. Like the thousands of people you saw were literally thousands of like poor people, poor black people that walked to the protests just out of the fact that we've all been victims of police brutality in Baltimore City. I got robbed by the police last August and like literally I was on a flight to uh, Arizona last week and I had just got, it was a year, like a year and a half later and I just got the complaint form that I filed back with internal affairs a year and a half later. So it like kind of shows the corruption, right? Baltimore City is a predominantly black city, 63% of the population, 79% of the uh, police force is white and commutes to Baltimore City to work, and only 11% of the pop, uh, police are black and live in Baltimore City and from Baltimore City, right? So Baltimore's a major American city, a major black American city, but it kind of displayed on national TV that it doesn't take white people to practice white supremacy, and so, uh, I kind of got involved with uh, Sheila and I met Keisha through uh, Devin Allen, who's the uh, guy with the bush. If you all are familiar with the Baltimore protest and you see the Time Magazine cover that says 1960 slashed out 2015, Devin was the one who shot that. Um, and so Devin's kind of been like my big brother, because uh, I'm 21, so this would have been the year I graduated college. Um, but so Devin's kind of been my big brother and he introduced me to Sheila and Keisha uh, at his art exhibit down in Baltimore. And, you know, I've since then, I think these spaces are very important um, because we don't get to talk about these spaces. Like, young black bodies are discredited so much and undervalued that we don't get to talk and you don't get to hear the minds of young people who are, like, actually engaged in making change. So I, think, I thank you all for this space and I hope tonight is a productive conversation. Thank you. Hey, y'all. Okay, now y'all are in a museum, not a mausoleum. So let's, you know, get some vibes flowing. Hey, y'all. Hey. Thank you, thank you. And I think that energy is really important, so uh, forgive me for enforcing that out of y'all. Um, my name is Arielle Marie. 
And I am a poet and a spoken word artist and an organizer activist. I love what Kwame said about being active before activism. Um, I, I think that's kind of what I've always, without knowing the language, kind of understood about that term. It's such a trigger word, it's such like a buzzword, but it, I mean, what does that mean, right, to be an activist? Um, but so before the movement kicked off, I was a poet and a spoken word artist and I left school. I dropped out of college after my freshman year and I was like, this institution of education doesn't serve me. I'm gonna go build my own. And I uh, created a, a curriculum uh, called Speak Black and I um, did it at a couple of local schools. I was put on by a couple of people and then uh, word of mouth is usually what keeps an artist's pockets padded and uh, was able to travel around the country and teach at uh, Harvard and NYU and UCLA and a couple different schools, uh, kind of giving young black uh, academic students tools to talk about their lived experiences and use hip hop and, and spoken word as a, as a vehicle for social justice work. And so then when Michael Brown was killed back in August of 2014, um, I looked up and I was like, oh, this is, this is what we've been talking about. Like this whole like systemic racism thing is like real and it's tangible and it's like fricative like in our in our like real live experiences right now. Um, and so we hit the street um, back then and just like in Baltimore, it was before there was any like organization, before there was a hashtag is bigger than you, which is the organization that um, I helped to found. It was, you know, just us hitting the streets and using Twitter and Facebook. Twitter and Facebook to, to gather the, the multitudes in the streets. And so there were 5,000 of us at the CNN Center last August. Um, and we gathered there because CNN wasn't telling the story right. They weren't, they weren't t talking about the, the truth of, of why uh, young blacks hit the streets in Ferguson. And we knew the truth because we were, we were a part of that lived, that lived experience of understanding how uh, anti-blackness shows up in real time in our lives. Um, so I, I was, you know, been doing that work for the past year been in the, on the ground and in the streets and building community using art and all that good stuff and was connected with Sheila by um, Julian. Julian uh, actually connected us, a, a brilliant, brilliant photographer uh, who's also a student and, and a um, comrade of mine and brought us together. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um. <laughs> so we're just gonna jump right into this with about five core questions that kind of represent the framework to this body of work, and then we're gonna open it up to the audience. Um, so I'm gonna start because the first thing that you saw in the video installation is this idea about the civil rights movement. And King said that the civil rights movement is not dead. A lot of people think that it's kind of died somewhere. Um, he said we're in the new phase of the movement. He described it, the first 12 years as a struggle to end legal segregation and the humiliation surrounding legal segregation. He goes on to say, now we are seeking genuine equality as we are dealing with hard economic and social issues, which are much more difficult. So to the panel, what does it mean to reclaim MLK, when you think about genuine equality as it relates to your work. Okay. 
so uh, in first you say reclaim MLK. Um, because our, our first messaging to that was to reclaim uh, one of our leaders who 30 years, 40 years after he was murdered um, was turned into a figurehead that didn't represent anything having to do with what he wanted. So, you know, one of the first things that we think about, we think about reclaiming MLK is that we, we reclaim him as a father and an ancestor um, and really want to reclaim the intensity and the passion behind his work. Um, that's first. And then the second thing that I think comes to mind when, when we're discussing reclaiming our um, true equality is uh, human dignity is, is, is something that is almost at the basis of, of every interaction. It's whether or not I respect you enough to give you the basics of what I know that I need as a human being. Human beings desire to be uh, treated as you would treat one another. Water is free. We expect, you know, we expect a certain amount of, of generosity. We expect a certain amount of reciprocity. We expect you not to hit me in the face when I walk in the door. We expect you to respect our children. So the basis of human dignity is things that everyone deserves. And I think that that's, that's what he means. It's, it's, now, it's, now it's illegal to treat us that way, but now how do we create a culture where this, the law is enforced? Because the law has never been enforced where, it's regard, where, where it regards the dignity of our people. So um, as it relates to like reclaiming the dream, so what I'll say is that like the civil rights movement, like I've been very critical of like the older generation and the fact that you know it's our time for young people to be the face of a movement and kind of for like the older generation to kind of step out of the way. But what I will say is that the civil rights movement it wasn't that they weren't, uh, didn't accomplish anything. They accomplished their dream of like desegregation and the Voting Rights Act and things of that nature, right? It's just the fact that when we got desegregation, we never, as a country, as a movement, as a people, we never moved into a movement to force integration. So even till this day, there is no such thing as integration. Baltimore City, I went to the third largest high school and it was 99% black. When I went to a white school, it was like brand new textbooks, but at the black schools, you can't even drink out of the water fountain because of lead in the uh, water uh, pipes, right? So when I think of the movement now, we don't have a Dr. King figure. There's no Malcolm X figure. There's literally no tangible person for the government to kill and the movement dies, or the movement gets co-opted to be just uh, credited to one person. The power of this movement now is that we have social media, and literally, the, when, I, when you say reclaim Dr. King, I think of reclaiming the narrative, right, and what Dr. King really wanted. Because Dr. King said in 1968 to Harry Belafonte, I fear I've integrated my people into a burning house, and that everything we lost through, in, everything we had through segregation, like a sense of communalism, a sense of taking care of each other, a sense of protecting ourselves from white, white uh, spaces and white supremacy, we lost it when we got this idea of integration. And really what desegregation was, was just a few blacks were allowed into white spaces, which basically allowed white people to be, to say, well, I have one white, I have one black friend. And so when I think of like reclaiming Dr. King, I think of reclaiming the narrative and telling our story on social media, right? So like none of this movement would be possible. National media isn't covering the fact that right now in Minnesota, the National Guard has been like uh, sent out because Minnesota police shot a black man in his head while he was handcuffed uh, last week. And so the pre protesters have went to the precinct and occupied the precinct, and they like even uh, a congressman's son was peacefully protesting last night, and the uh, police put up a rifle at him, and there's a picture that's gone viral of that. 
So I think it's like reclaiming the narrative of today and figuring out that the ancestors of the civil rights movement laid the pave, laid the, they paved the road for our generation to lay the bricks for future generations to have an easier walk to freedom. That is the perfect statement to go right into the next question. And so I want some of you that have that on your mind to maybe respond to this. So we know digital media is powerful in terms of the perspectives of the people and the narratives. Um, before people heard or saw the organizers of Black Lives Matter, the hashtag was trending. And this morning I searched the hashtag under Google's search engine and 12 million entries in 0.50 seconds came up. But then I went and I said, well, let me, you know, let me enter all lives matters hashtag. And 159 million entries in 0.36 seconds show up. So there are many who criticize the Black Lives Matter movement, suggesting that the phrase suggests that nobody else's life matters, down to the point that our president addressed it and said that um, what they're suggesting was there is a specific problem that is happening in the African-American community that is not happening in other communities. So to the panel, as we consider the history of black bodies in the country coming in as a commodity from slavery and now here we are um, in a time of mass incarceration and corporations owning, owning prisons, what are your views of the Black Lives Matter movement? Uh, well, well, for the, the well, since graduating college, um, I started uh, working as a writer for um, for Black Art in America, and you know, and, and prior to that, I had a piece published in the Nation, and I had done work with different you know like news outlets, and you know through those experiences, I got a, you know an up and close look at a glimpse at how media does in shaping the narrative. And um, in creating the conversation amongst you know the average everyday person, so a lot of the people you want to you 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 come across in the streets and you want to dialogue about some of these issues with, or they're just on everybody's tongue. A lot of these people are just parroting the news outlets that they watch. So you'll have certain people parroting Fox News. So you bring up you know did you did you see the um did you see Eric Garner get choked to death on film legally, and they'll say uh, but what about black on black crime? And this is a, you know, this is a common um, slogan thrown out by different, you know, talking heads on certain conservative news outlets. So you have people parroting these things, and with social media, it has, it's enabled, you know, the general people to, you know, put their own perspectives, out, their own perspectives out there and challenge those popular narratives on a broad basis. So, um, you know, like you can, you can shoot out a couple of memes um, that. Some of them kind of make, make it comical uh, to challenge some of these topics, but at the same time, it's very insightful. And um, as I keep saying, it's perception changing. And I think that's a large part of the problem that we have in this country. And in a lot of countries around the world, a lot of things are being told from uh, um, the perspective of like the dominant white society. So like as a white person, the way you see the world is the way it's going to be presented in the news and in the, in the movies and the curriculum and having social media um, allows us to, to get everybody's perspective on a certain topic and that's how you're going to get the truth by letting everybody speak because the truth holds weight and it's going to float to the top every time and as far as uh, Black Lives Matter um, it became a popular you know slogan or a popular hashtag and, and most 
people on the news talk about it from an organizational standpoint, but I would say most black people look at it as a slogan for, you know, for, for showing you their humanity and letting you know, like, it's not okay to kill us. We are people and we do have emotions. Yeah, so um, just piggybacking off like the transition from the, two, the last question, like I think that everyone forgets that Martin Luther King died a hated man. Everyone forgets that he, for the you know 20 years after his death, he was you know public enemy number one. He was someone who allowed those uppity Negroes down in the South to you know get some get the audacity to resist the the normalcy, right? Um, and in that same vein. Uh, we have romanticized the civil rights movement in a way that has done it such injustice so that we are um, now as, as, as activists, quote unquote, organizers or whatever in the Black Lives Matter movement held to the impossible standard of this like beautiful, passive, peaceful king who always wore a good suit and tie. And you know, that, that's just not what that movement was about. They shut the streets down, they you know, made Politicians red in the face. It was. It was. You know, there were arguments. There were. It was not a a, a peaceful uh, interaction. It was not calm and and, and uh, satiated with with the crumbs that white supremacy has allowed us over the past couple of years. And so, when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement now, you're looking at a, a gathering of, of young people from all over the country who believe that resistance has to exist. Resistance must exist outside of the institution in order for us to survive. Um, and I think Audre Lorde said it best, you know, we were never meant to survive, like be very clear, uh, this country was never meant uh, to, to have black people and brown people free. Like that's not what the old white dudes sat down and talked about in Pennsylvania, like that wasn't it. They, they, they created a country uh, that was going to be supported by free labor on the backs of folks of color. And so we were not meant to, to, to thwart that system. And we are living in a country that is built on, upon the idea that black lives, brown lives, uh, bodies of color are less valuable than, than white people. And that's just, I mean, that is, that's statistically and, and um, historically uh, accurate. And so the Black Lives Matter movement, both as a hashtag, both as a rallying cry and a war cry, and as organizations and like this, this um, decentralized, leaderful uh, uh, network of, of radical organizers, is a, um, a resistance against a system that is consistently trying to kill us. And when we hit the streets and when we're shutting stuff down, it's because we know that the other option is to sit on our hands and wait to die. That's a good lead way into my can next I, can question. Can I say one thing? Quick, we got we, we, yeah. So, <laughs> like, even the fact, like, Black Lives Matter is, it's, for, for many, like, for outsiders, it's an organization, right? But, like, literally, the power of social media made it the number one trending hashtag for a large part of the last year and a half. And for the, those of us who believe Black Lives Matter, like I'm not a part of Black Lives Matter, the organization or the movement necessarily, but I'm a believer that my black life matters and so do the lives that look just like me. Like but when we allow outsiders, that's the thing, like so when we say we have to make the distinguishing of whether or not we're part of the organization, most outsiders, most white people don't know the difference between Don Lemon and Mark Lamont Hill. So even when you have like people on TV, like Fox News bring Quano X on to, to like be the oppositional uh, voice. Most Fox, uh, CNN brings Mark Lamont Hill on there to put sense into white people, yet at the same time, we phenomenize black intellectuals and kind of group them in the same because we don't expect black people to be independent thinkers. Okay, thank you. 
So I'm going to cut what we're doing here kind of short. I have one last question, and I'd like the two of you to respond because you haven't spoke. And then we're going to open it up so that we all can engage in conversation and dialogue. So um, yesterday, students across the nation stood in solidarity with the University of Missouri using the hashtag student blackout. In Atlanta, Georgia, members of the ACU, Georgia State, Emory, and Georgia Tech shut down Peachtree Street. Um, this morning, activist DeRay tweeted um, a link, the demands.org, detailing a list of demands by each university that stood in solidarity around the country, including Yale and Princeton. Um, a commenter uh, responded, he says, it's upsetting to see the similarities proving a systematic problem. As the majority of Americans seek educational opportunity, um, are the list of demands to create change enough? Um, are there examples of how we can transform oppressive systems and establish new leadership? I don't think that any list of demands is ever enough, but it's always a starting point. Um, as far as, I'm just going to speak about the 10%, the um, Mizzou wanted a demand at that there be 10% authority figures, um, administrators, black in the in the university and the backlash and even people that were good about that was that no primarily white institution has that so that they're over stretching they're they're asking for too much because that's not a thing that exists in universities that are with white people um, and that by itself is saying a lot about where we are um, and the things that we need and are, you know, should be able to ask for and demand as black people. Um, and I don't, I think they're at like a, what, 2%, 2 to 3%. Um, so with that, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's okay to ask for those things. Uh, and it's necessary to make a list of demands. One of the things that, um, with the um, things that I've done around direct actions in Atlanta have all come with lists of demands because that's one of the important things a lot of people see just us disrupting things and standing in traffic um, and having that list of demands is an important part of action always um, and asking for small things and large things is necessary the reason that it's seen as not okay is again because of the value of our lives we're not supposed to have the audacity to be able to demand a thing for us that is available to everyone else. Thank you. Um, and I agree with Crystal that a list of demands is um, the first step. And it kind of sets up, um, I guess, it tells people that like this is what we're going to work for. Um, so we're basically not going to stop until we do. Um, so, like, I know personally in my in the movement that I'm involved in, the undocumented student movement here in Atlanta, um, like, we tell, you know, the, P the Board of Regents, our particular person, how that we, um, like, this is what we want, but that doesn't mean we're just going to be like, here, this is what we want, and then just sit back and wait for them to give it to us. We're not going to do that. We know they're not going to listen to us until, so every meeting we show up, every time we see them, we tell them, like, hey, we're still here and we're, we're still waiting. Um, so yeah, a list of demands is good, um, but also like, 
continued student action. Thank you. Um, so we are gonna open this up to the floor. This is a conversation we can have all night. But I wanna just give you a few ground rules, if I may. Um, number one, we must love and, and respect each other. Okay, that's rule number one. <laughs> um, please have a question and not a comment. If you have a comment, just use the hashtag because we'll see it and it'll live somewhere forever. Um, <laughs> let us know who your question is directed to. And um, last, if you are tuning in from Periscope, is that you, Aaron? Um, if, if you're tuning in from Periscope, just um, ask your question in the comment box and we'll try to pick, take at least one of those. And maybe some of our members, if you directed and tag them, they'll answer you directly. So let's start with the first row since this is 1960 who? Um, you, sir. Hey, What took you so long since 79 until 2002 of Trey Martin, Trey uh, Van Martin, you guys were dead. You thought you had it. You wouldn't listen to us elders, even my children. Oh, Pop, you know, you old time. But thank you for at least putting a foot forward now. You know, this is just a microcosm of what we had to go through. And we tried to pass it on, but you young people just didn't care. Didn't want to listen. I see kids walking around with Alabama stuff on. I saw the governor of Alabama stand in the way of two black kids. And you catch me in Alabama stuff? Or Georgia stuff? when all these southern schools had a law, if any football team with any Negro on the opposition team, you will lose your uh, uh, funding from the state. Thank you. I, um, I think this is a question that we get a lot and it contributes to the, the uh, schism between the two generations of, uh, of, of movement, quote unquote, uh, leaders. The question, well, about time, or where have y'all been? Um, we, I, I don't know about you know my peers on the on the panel, but when I grew up, there wasn't a conversation about racism. I mean, I grew up um, for the for the first ten years of my life. For the first ten years of my life, I, I we listened. For the first ten years of my life, I, I lived in a uh, upper middle class, uh, four story. I mean, not four story, four bedroom, two story home. Uh, and we were the only black family. And when a pile of dog uh, crap was left on our doorstep, and I asked my mom, you know, what, what, who would put that there and why? Um, my mother was afraid to talk to me about racism because I went to a school where I was one of the only black girls. And when I moved in with my grandfather after we lost that home because we were black folks, who were living on the who were living on the better part of the city and uh, the same resources to get our family out of the throes of the um, stock market crash were not were not were not extended to us like they were to other families in our neighborhood. Um, my grandfather sat me down and was like, "They don't they don't care about you. 
and they don't, they don't want to see you survive. They don't want to see you thrive. But that wasn't a dialogue that was extended to me for the better part of my life, nor was it a dialogue that was supported in our educational institutions, in our churches, in our churches, good Lord, and in our, in our YMCA uh, after school programs. We were, we were um, discouraged from engaging in the conversation about race. We were told as children that, that the conversation about race was dealt with by your generation sometimes and often by members of your generation. So when we sit down and have this conversation about where were you, uh, we got here on our own. Young people got to this, to this place after watching um, so many people killed and so many people disenfranchised. And we're often told by people from the other generation that now after being put in this place that we're not doing it right. That we haven't, you know, we're not walking like Martin walked. We're not talking how King talked. We ain't, we ain't sitting with our legs crossed like Rosa was. Right, and, and it, it, we have been discouraged at almost every turn about how to engage in the conversation about race, and so we've had to, instead of looking at the blueprint that your generation could have left us, we've had to build one for ourselves, and I think that both of us agree that that's something that we disagree, that we, that we, um, that we regret. So, can, I, can, I, can I let somebody else on that same generation speak? Let me, let me say this, just one, so what I'll say is that there's no success without a successor. In our generation, this movement is literally, we missed a generation. In a lot, of, a lot of parts, we missed two generations. My parents just turned 40, right? So what happened after the Civil Rights Movement, like they attacked Dr. King, they pushed this narrative of Dr. King was for peace and equality and turn the other cheek, and then they killed him when he started talking about, wait a minute, I made a mistake. And so right when he started talking about independence from white supremacy and from white America, then we got complacent. So they pushed this narrative so that we became complacent. But then we also have to remember that during the 80s, when our parents were born, it was the crack babies, right? It was the crack generation, so they fed it to us. We were on the right pathway to independence and the building independent black institutions, but then they put drugs and drugged us and changed our mindsets. So we just getting back on track. We literally just, as a people in a generation that was already 400 years behind, we just getting detoxed. Let me speak for... Let me try to <clears throat> let me try to speak for another part of that generation. Um, we cannot afford to have a circular firing squad where we get around and start shooting at one another. Because I don't think there's anybody in this room in this setting who's our enemy per se, regardless of color. Uh, I'm very happy to see, in a kind of a perverse way, what happened with Trayvon Martin and others. Because we've always somehow or other had the delusion of inclusion for a long period of time. And that was a delusion. But let me just also make a case for my generation, if I might. Historically, if you are French, you know your French history. If you're German, you know your German history. If you're Italian, you know your Italian history. But if you are African-American, your history has been some of the most sordid history in the history of mankind. And therefore, a lot of people who look like me don't want to talk about slavery. They don't want to talk about segregation. They don't want to talk about how they had no rights that the smallest white child was bound to respect. So therefore, parents don't like to give their children bad news. 
especially African-American people. How can you tell your child you were making $5 a day in cocktail, working for, from can to can? How can you tell your child, et cetera, et cetera, all those kind of things? I want to apologize to the young people for not passing the baton per se in that regard, but let me just tell you, as an adult, I don't want to tell my children bad news. If the rent was due, and it was due next week, I'm not going to tell my children, you know, the rent's due next week. I got to go get the rent. You go get the rent, you pay it, and you don't tell the children the, the bad news. I think, though, that we've got to do a, do a, little, bit, a little bit better job on that. And here's what I mean by that. We've got to thank these white policemen who were shooting these black folks in the back for serving as a catalyst for us to have this kind of conversation. Now, what am I, what, what am I doing personally on this, uh, on this score? We've got to tell our history, because if you don't, what's the word? You will repeat it time and time again. You are living in the most racist country ever known to mankind. Now, a lot of folks don't want, don't want to admit that, but that's true if you, if, you, if, you, if you look at the facts. What are we doing? Let's, do, let's move beyond talking. The question that um, this young lady right here raised, obliquely if not directly, was the same question that was raised with me about six or eight weeks ago at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And let me tell you what I'm trying to do personally on this. I've just got an agreement where we're going to put together a program for the Atlanta public schools that we're going to take statewide eventually, where we're going to we are uh, we, we are going to show DVDs, we're going to show the history, we're going to show all this stuff, and also some of the things that we did in order to bring about change. But let me just say to you, we're going to. We don't have the ideas about how to solve everything today. You've got to come up here and define what you think you need to do to carry this mantle of freedom forward. I've carried it. I'm 79 years old. My mind is 26 now. I can still talk and think, but I can't run like I used to run. I can't walk like I used to walk, but I'm relying on my children. I'm relying on you. Because freedom for us, whether we like it or not, is not a crystal stair. It is a journey, a long distance run, and every generation will have to take that baton when it is put in your hands and run as far and as fast as you can. Let's give you one example of what I'm talking about. We thought we were free. We, we took the science down, all of that stuff. Now, that was monumental, folks. If you all think that was simple, I got, I got something to sell you right outside of this place, and it's a bridge. We changed the world, yes, but we did not change how some folks in the world felt about us. Therefore, you got to now go back to the drawing board, figure out some kind of way to make this thing different. One example, young people remember, someone mentioned up here, the folks who were the oppressors used propaganda to carry forward their racist message. They use the TV and the radio to ha tell half-truths. 
You may have seen something called Morning Joe. This guy named Joe, whatever his name is, Scarborough. When those kids out of Missouri raised holy hats and got those two people fired, he came on TV the next morning, he was livid, talking about how the nerve of those black folks getting, getting those folks fired. And he does that almost every morning. How many of you have challenged his butt? But the point I'm making to you is, is uh, simply this. Young folks, wake up. You're already, you already alive and well. We're going to do our best here in Atlanta to make sure that our history is told and that we pass this baton on. But don't get caught up in a circular firing squad. That is counterproductive. It will not work. It's hard work. Final example about this thing about propaganda. The last Friday in every month, you see the unemployment report. And they say it's coming down. It's 5% now. Well, let's examine that for a moment. Let's don't all praise that, because what does that really mean? What that really means is that if you are white in America, you almost have zero unemployment. That's what that means. If you're black in America, you are about 15 to 20% unemployed. And the Latino is about the same thing. If you are over, if you are over a certain age, no, under a certain age, your unemployment is about 30 or 40 percent. But what does the what does the media do? They show you at five percent. That looks good. It's getting better, but not for us. So, so you got to look beyond the veneer in order to find out where where do we go from here. So if I may, if I may, we've gone over time. This conversation can go on and on, and I'm sorry we didn't get to the audience, but we are so glad that you are here. Keep these conversations alive. There's a lot of people we didn't hear from, but we need to hear from you, because it starts here. It starts with a group of people who are interested enough to think that we are better than what we're told we are, and that we can work together collectively. I'm going to turn it over to Sheila. Um, I want to thank everybody for coming out, and I know we didn't have enough time for the dialogue, but I really want to thank um, MOCA and the Lorian Awards for this project because a lot of times as an artist, you know, I've taken the position to want to talk about art activism and how we can talk about it through art. And I want to thank Schluck Project um, and Denneton where um, I was able to project my protest images out in the street with Flux Night. And one more, Mason Fine Art. And we can continue this conversation, and we have to understand that we're in a critical moment in our history. And we're at a tipping point where we must come together, and we have to deal with these difficult issues. Globally, our, our, the world is very chaotic. It's very disruptive. And nobody's comfortable. If we keep dreaming, we're not going to work it out. And with that being said, we have one last thing, entertainment. Thank That we're here speaking, then you may. Um, and 
Yeah, thank everyone. Thank you for being here. This is Najee Dorsey. You listen to another installment of Bio Talks. Be sure to follow Black Art in America at blackartinamerica.com and look for us on your favorite social media platform, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. And remember, you can always shop for art online at www.buyblackart.com.